and welcome to another episode of Model Railroad Hobbyist Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Gillette, and joining me today is Andy Edelman of Mike's Train House, MTH Trains. So, welcome, Andy. Thank you, Paul. I appreciate the opportunity. Ah, appreciate your time. i tell you what, you guys uh, do a lot of things. I mean, you cover a lot of bases, everything from large-scale Lionel down to HO to DC uh, control systems or DCC control systems. Why don't you give uh, everybody a little overview of the company, maybe how it got started and so forth, and we'll uh, move on from there. Oh, yeah, sure, Paul. Um, MTH was uh, originally a mail order uh, train uh, house, uh, if you will. Uh, it was run literally out of a a, uh, a house. Um, Mike Wolf is the owner of the company, and he formed it in 1980 at that time to um, wholesale and retail via mail order Lionel Train. And uh, Mike had gotten his start with uh, Williams Electric Trains, and um, he um, uh, began selling Lionel product and uh, then eventually branched into uh, template manufacturing, um, having acquired the template cooling. And by template, we're talking about stamped metal trains from the early part of the, of the 20th century, 1900, right. 1940 or so. And Williams had, had produced a lot of that stuff in the 70s and, and 80s. And Mike purchased that tooling and uh, started that uh, manufacturing segment of his business in, in the early 1980s. And from there, it transitioned into O-gauge manufacturing, uh, eventually G-gauge. Uh, HO and uh, control systems and digital sound uh, packages that go in locomotives and uh, 1,100 retailers carrying the product around the country and tens of thousands of consumers purchasing it. And uh, it's been a, an, an interesting story from, from that perspective and a big part of the model railroading hobby at this point. As far as uh, how much of the pie each of those uh, makes up of MTH, you know, what's the breakout of the of the business percentage-wise amongst the gauges? Well, uh, O-Gauge uh, is still the prominent uh, part of our business. Um, the fastest-growing segment uh, in our product lines is HO, and, and that's really a result of the fact that the HO marketplace is so much bigger than the O-Gauge marketplace. But, uh, you know, most of our production from uh, 1992 up through the mid-2000s uh, was primarily O-Gauge with a smattering of, of G-Gauge, about 10% of the, of the, of the sales and about 10 to 15% uh, on any given year for template reproductions. Um, and now with uh, HO, that's about 20% or so. And so there's where we've seen a tr transition, if you will, has been from O-Gauge to HO in terms of uh, sales. But HO, I mean, O-Gauge still retains its prominence within our product line. Uh, each given year, we produce about uh, 15 to 1,600 different items. Um, and uh, of those items, the, you know, 60%, 65% are, are still O-gauge. Uh, so it's our primary business. Uh, but I can certainly foresee a time uh, in the very near future where HO gets to be about the same size, if not bigger. And that's really just a, a result of the fact that the HO marketplace is so much larger than the O-gauge market. Okay. Now, I've seen some of the videos of uh, O-gauge. And, you know, you guys do a very nice job of detailing that out. And that smoke generator you've got on your diesels, boy, you need to open the windows. That thing works. It does indeed. And uh, it's probably our, uh, our real calling card for our product line in terms of um, what people uh, attribute to, uh, you know, a distinguishing thing about NTH products, whether it be O-gauge or standard gauge or, or, or G-gauge or HO, is that they smoke and they smoke like nobody else's train. And uh, that was something that we had developed um, in the 90s, um, and uh, we felt that uh, we could really distinguish ourselves uh, from anybody else's smoking by not just having the smoke stream out on the case of a steam locomotive, but actually puff out in time with mm -hmm. the drive wheels and, uh, and the sound effects. And it's a patented feature for us, um, and it's uh, absolutely in time with each drive wheel revolution. It's... Uh, default to four chuffs per wheel revolution on, on steam engines, and uh, that's adjustable using our command control technology if, if somebody so desires to turn off the prototypical appearance. Um, and uh, it, uh, it really, really does stand out. I can tell you that when we do uh, 
model train shows around the country. Uh, we draw a crowd every time we uh, fire up a steam locomotive and have it running around our layout um, because it's just impressive and people aren't used to seeing that kind of thing. So uh, certainly it, it can put it out there. The diesel engines just pour it out when, when they want. And uh, we get some criticism from diesel purists who say that a modern locomotive would never smoke that much. And our response is, you're right, and fortunately you can turn the smoke down uh, diminish the uh, the uh, intensity of the smoke or turn it off, and, and frankly, a lot of people do turn it off because uh, it can get a little overwhelming when you've got multiple locomotives running at the same time and all pouring out smoke. <laughs> I watched a uh, <clears throat> uh, shifting gears to H a, a video, and on a very well done uh, HO scale layout set in West Virginia it reminded me of the CNO line coming up through Hinton towards Huntington. And a guy had a, uh, one of your Berkshires, one of your, uh, ex Paramarquette lettered for CNO. Mm-hmm. And even looking intently at it, I thought, you know, this could be a real Berkshire coming at me because of the, the chuffs, the, the pulsation of the, the smoke to the chuff, and uh, your sound. I've noticed that on some of your whistle effects, you've got a lot more mid-range and lower mid-range and even bass uh, resonating, especially on your big boy. That's an incredible whistle sound that comes out of that HO big boy. And, yeah, you guys have done that very, very well. Uh, I'm not surprised it's patented. I'm sure you put a lot of developmental time and money into that. Well, yeah, we did. Uh, we uh, one of the things that distinguishes us from from our competitors is the fact that we developed our own digital package, uh, and that and that started in the uh, in the early well, I should say in the late 90s during the development process. And in O Gauge, the first locomotives that came out with um, with this digital package were marketed with Protosound 2.0. Um, prior to that, our Protosound system was uh, produced by uh, Electronics House in, in Asia, but developed by QSI. And uh, QSI came to kind of an end of life of that design system in terms of component availability. And rather than going forward with them for a new uh, development system, we decided to, to tackle it ourselves because we wanted to own that technology. And uh, it's really helped distinguish us from, from everybody else because so many companies just utilize third-party manufacturers for that stuff. And um, in order to make it uh, a go, uh, certainly an O-gauge, we needed it to have some distinguishing fact uh, features and, and, and effects and so forth. The smoke obviously was one. The digital sound, going out recording real locomotives and then uh, incorporating that sound into the locomotives, creating the whistle effects that you, that you mentioned. Uh, there's different uh, decays, if you will, on the whistle effect, depending on how long you hold the whistle button down. And we have built-in crossing signals and forward and reverse signals and so forth that are accessible via shortcut uh, through a DCS system or the DCC systems that are out there. So uh, it really adds a level of realism. And when you when you see these locomotives running on very well-done modular layouts or, or home layouts, um, yeah, you can get that same kind of uh, visual uh, question: Is it real or is it uh, is it a model? And uh, that's the ultimate compliment when we hear that kind of thing, and uh, uh, we certainly work hard to, to attain that whenever we can. I mean, you know, model railroading is a, an opportunity for for a person to um, control their own empire, if you will. Um, and uh, the more realistic you can make the product, uh, the more effects that you can have in there, it just helps uh, create that sense of um, of control and uh, lets the imagination run wild. And some of these folks that are out there designing these layouts and building these layouts. Uh, just really take it to another level, and why not have the train do that as well? So that's been our goal, and it's it's worked out well, and, and it's really neat to hear that kind of feedback. Okay, now, on your website, one thing I, I liked was I could do a, a PDF download of your catalog, like on HO, I was interested uh, in that, which I thought was a really neat uh, ability to do. Uh, you guys have got within HO, again, a real diverse product offering as far as locomotives. Now you've got passenger uh, sets like for Southern Pacific, NW. What drives the the choice? I mean, 
I would have never guessed in a hundred years somebody outside of a brass manufacturer would have made a Milwaukee bipolar electric. How did all this come about? Well, uh, there's a couple of ways that it came about, and it really goes back to our history uh, in the 1980s. Um, we were still, uh, in addition to, to manufacturing the template reproductions from the tooling that we had purchased from Williams, we were still wholesaling and retailing Lionel products. And we had a retail store at that time. Uh, it was a 2,000-square-foot store, so it wasn't huge. But we got a lot of feedback from consumers walking in, O-Gage consumers, who were annoyed with, uh, at the time, Lionel's um, product offerings because they were pretty much the same. Uh, year in and year out, they didn't invest a lot of money in new tooling. They just came up with different deco schemes, and, and uh, frankly, they didn't run that well either. Um, and we kind of filed all that feedback back in, the, in our heads and said, you know, if we were going to be a competitor, uh, we need to figure out uh, what these people want and, and produce it for them. There's no reason for them to have to, you know, have the same choices, albeit different paint schemes, year in and year out. And uh, so we just frankly, began documenting what that feedback was. And uh, when we um, started producing O-Gage and competing head-to-head uh, -head with Lionel and, and Williams and Weaver models and so forth, um, our thought process was we've got to have locomotives that nobody else has done before. And uh, if you look at that history in, in O-Gage, uh, you can certainly see a wide variety of products that, that people had never had. Bipolars and Little Joes and, and whatnot are some. Uh, in, in Pennsylvania, we've got L5 electrics and BB1s and BD1s and, and, and so forth. Uh, so there's a whole bunch of, of stuff in each category, whether it be steam, electric, diesel, and so forth, that nobody else was producing at the time. And uh, it was a lot more work because you were producing a, a much bigger variety of products. As I mentioned earlier, 15 to 1,600 SKUs per year. Now, that's our current pace. It wasn't that big back then, but um, certainly, we were producing more options, more choices for the O-Gage consumer at the time uh, than what was being offered from any of our competitors. Frankly, I think you could combine all of our competitors' offerings at that point in time, and they wouldn't equal what we were doing. Um, and the beauty of it is, as we um, began to refine our digital protosound package in the 2000s, um, and with our focus being that we could shrink this thing down and get into other markets, O-H-O being uh, foremost, um, we knew that that work that we had done in the 90s and prior uh, prior to, to the mid-2000s was going to come back and help us get into these other marketplaces. So if we had success in O-Gage with a bipolar, why couldn't we have success in H-O with a bipolar or a big boy or a GG1 or a little Joe or what have you? And that's exactly how it's how it's come together. And uh, we did the same thing with G-Gage as well. And, and uh, so the bottom line is, by starting in one gauge and then having a digital package that would allow us to get into other scales, we were able to utilize the designs. We had to refine them. We had to, you know, do different things with uh, HO that we wouldn't have necessarily done with O in terms of prototypical accuracy from paint scheme to paint scheme whenever possible. But bottom line was, we already had a head start because we had had enjoyed success in developing those models in the other scales. So that's how you see it. Uh, it's really listening to what the customer wanted um, in O-Gage. We certainly do that in HO. We document everything, and uh, we can go back through and say, you know, let's, let's try this because people have been asking for it for X number of years, and nobody does it, and so forth. It's harder today because there's so many choices that have already been produced, um, whether it's in O or HO. But uh, really, the whole focal point is listening to what that customer says uh, what they what they desire, and then uh, seeing if that will work within your ability to produce an item. And um, uh, if you don't do that, you, you can't succeed. you got to listen to what the customers say, and that's really what our focal point's always been. So is that <clears throat> that uh, modeler that is looking for a highly detailed bipolar, GG1, whatever, Little Joe, has that turned out to be maybe uh, a little uh, niche demographic there for you uh, as far as maybe discretionary income availability? Uh, obviously, a modeler that desires that level of detail and capability with your DCS system. Is that maybe you've surfaced uh, a different little uh, demographic there? Well, I think uh, without a doubt that's the case. I um, mean, we don't, you know, we're not producing a bipolar uh, for the uh, entry uh, HO uh, customer. Uh, who wants to spend $89? You know, that's not gonna, right. that's not going to happen. Um, and and 
you know, we could certainly produce product in that kind of category, but it wouldn't distinguish itself, not that there's bipolars in that category, but, you know, whatever it could be, it wouldn't distinguish itself from our competitors um, because we wouldn't be able to put the, the technology into those locomotives at that price point. So uh, by default, you're producing a product that's going to appeal to uh, an enthusiast who can afford it. Um, and it's not the most expensive by any means. It's certainly, I, I put it in a mid-upper uh, uh, mid range in terms of what the, the product costs uh, the end user. But um, certainly, you know, some people are not going to be able to afford it. And we've tried to reach out to those folks in, in some form or fashion by offering some of our offerings in HO uh, without the digital package in place and allow them to um, save some money and, and, if they so choose, to add their own um, DCC uh, module, um, whether it be sound equipped or just a command control module, into the locomotive uh, and save a little bit of money. And um, what we've discovered is that our niche um, has um, really not responded to that. Uh, they want the sound. And uh, as a result, we see a much higher percentage of uh, locomotives sold with our digital package than without. Um, so even though we've, we've offered some of these items, I think that they're still too expensive <laughs> for that type of customer. And, and so by default, we do have a niche market, and it's a, it's a fairly substantial market in size, uh, but certainly not as big as an entry-level market might be uh, where, where you've got somebody that doesn't uh, doesn't have an issue spending you know, $80, $90, $100. And you know, to that point, when my local hobby shop brought in your uh, SD70ACE, now he surveyed the, some of the people down there, and he bought them in as just regular DC, uh, you know, C-ready. He didn't put the 3.0 sound in them. Right. Uh, but they flew off the shelf. They flew off the shelf. He had a shipment of Genesis and your shipment at the same time, and within a couple of days, the MTH version was just gone. People saw the detail, and it was just sold. Now, I do a series with... Train uh, Talk, or I'm sorry, Train Tech uh, LLC out of the Boston area. Sure. And, and <clears throat> Phil Greenberg, one of their techs, who's really gotten into the DCS system, uh, we've done a couple shows just focused on the capability. So you mentioned early on that you had uh, a 2.0 system, then you brought it in-house and just took it to a whole new paradigm. Why something that in most people's eye is they see it as just totally non-compatible with regular DCC. And so they do this pushback on it without really looking at the enormous capability of your control system. Uh, I've always been interested. Why did you choose? Was this more just let's be not only different but a lot better, and if we go down this path, we can be better than regular DCC, what was the thought process there? Well, uh, that's an excellent question, and I think it really um, is a twofold answer. Um, and one, one is to make sure that the customer understands that the DCS system is not necessarily um, uh, a product that, um, that we really uh, are that concerned about people buying today. Um, the locomotive um, is equipped with receivers that will respond to both DCS and DCC. So when we developed DCS, it wasn't at the time uh, a product that we were offering to the uh, HO marketplace. Uh, you know, we started our first HO engine was in 06, uh, and I don't think it came out till 07, but it was the Penzi K4 uh, steam locomotive. And uh, the DCS system had been uh, out on the market for five years prior to that, uh, and we'd sold tens of thousands of them to the O-Gage marketplace because we had developed and produced hundreds of thousands of Protosound 2.0 equipped O-Gage locomotives. And uh, it wasn't until we shrunk down Protosound 2, the onboard package that you find in the locomotives, renamed it Protosound 3 because it was now smaller and incorporated a DCC receiver into it. Um, until that was developed, we could not be in the HO marketplace because we knew that most people in HO are DCC, and they, they're going to buy our train if they can run it with DCC. So because it has a DCC receiver in there, you do not need DCS to run those locomotives. You can run them with anybody's controller. 
And every lo- okay. every locomotive comes with 28 F functions uh, built into it. Um, and uh, we uh, have made some changes to the functionality of the DCC um, board in the locomotives um, as a result of feedback that we've gotten from customers, including Train Tech with their feedback and, and other uh, installers of DCC upgrade kits. Um, and so the bottom line was is that when somebody is looking at MTH um, and they're thinking, well, you know, they're forcing DCS down our throat, we really don't care um, to a degree if an HO customer purchases DCS. We want them to purchase the locomotives, and we want them to understand that those locomotives can be operated in analog mode with any DC power supply or in command mode with any DCC controller. Um, I think if you uh, look at the hobby of model railroading and compare it to the uh, electronic game industry, um, uh, Sony's PlayStation 2 or uh, IBM's Xbox and whatnot, the manufacturers of those control systems, Sony or, or IBM or whoever, they're not as interested in selling you multiple boxes. Uh, they only need to sell you one box. You're only going to buy one PS2 system. You're only going to buy one Xbox system. What they want you to buy is the games because the games can be played on those control systems, on those, those components. We're the same way. We, if you ultimately have or already have a DCC control system, then you don't need a box. But what you do need are the games, and the games in this case are the locomotives. So if our locomotives can run with those DCC control systems, then we're going to break into the HO marketplace, and that's exactly what has happened. Now, down the road, it's conceivable that that market will begin to understand that, hey, this locomotive can also run under DCS, and DCS is far different than DCC. So I might want to think about DCS down the road. And if they do, that's great. Now, the problem is is that they have to figure out uh, or understand that DCS and DCC aren't the same protocol, and they don't run at the same time. So you, you are either running in a DCS environment or you're running on a DCC environment. So until that customer can say to themselves, DCS is so much better than DCC um, that I don't care that I have to run under separate environments, um, then the, the chance for DCS to succeed in HO is going to be limited. Uh, and we can speed that acceptance up um, if we provide that same customer with an alternative for the rest of their motive power uh, to DCC. And that would be a Protosound 3 upgrade that they can install in those locomotives that now has both the DCC and DCS receiver built into it, and they can eventually transition away from the DCC controllers as they upgrade their roster with DCS uh, Protosound 3.0 upgrade. If they if they want to get, and ultimately they're going to make that decision if they understand what the value is, what the improvements are uh, with a DCS control system versus a DCC control system. And uh, in all honesty, we've been very very conservative about how we introduce the DCS technology to the HO marketplace. If you look at our if you look at our advertisements. Um, in the magazines and, and even uh, online, the electronic uh, links and so forth that we have on the various forums, you see very little or no mention of DCS. What you see is DCC, DCC, DCC. We want the customer to understand, if you buy a locomotive from MTH, it's going to run with your DCC controller. When you get that locomotive, there's going to be talk about DCS, and you're going to continue to get um, you know, as you get more involved with MTH, going to our website, you're going to keep seeing DCS at that point. Um, but until those upgrade modules are available, it makes no sense for us to fight this um, preponderance of DCC control uh, that's out there in the HO market. So we're not even trying. What we want the customer to understand is you buy an MTH engine, it'll run with what you've already got. You don't need that DCS system. Um, uh, on your on your roster, it, certainly the train is going to be more fun if you do. But recognizing that there's two separate operating environments, it's not that appealing. So what we'd like for folks to really come away with uh, understanding our philosophy is that it's the locomotive, not the control system that they should be looking at. Down the road, the control system will make more sense when there's an upgrade module and they can start converting their 
their roster over to DCS if that's the way they want to go. Um, but they don't have to go that way. That's really the whole point. Okay, and see, that's, I guess I'm going to call it a misconception. I had this, we had a work party at the hobby shop for restoring a HO model railroad that came out of a museum. And I asked the guys, I said, all right, give me your impression of MTH. I said, and we're just talking HO, and what do you know about DCS and so forth? And I kept hearing the same stereotype, incompatibility with DC or DCC. I said, are you sure? How do you know? Well, that's what I've heard. I said, well, you're wrong. And really, yeah. I said, you can do, you know, the capabilities in the locomotive. It's, you know, you can run it with, you know, a soundtracks decoder if that's what you choose to do, or you can do DCS, just what you said. Now, on your website, is there a link that people can go to that's going to, how do I find out information on uh, ProtoSound 3.0? Well, it's it's featured in um, any of the products, uh, and uh, it's described in the uh, operator's manuals, which are downloadable. There's a section on the website, uh, a link for DCS, uh, and, and we're actually getting ready to, to switch over to a brand new site um, here in the, in the next 30 days or so. Um, and at that point, there'll be a lot more easy to find information on ProSound 3.0 and DCS uh, than what you currently find now. Some of the HO stuff uh, is kind of hidden on the HO site, mphotrains.com. And um, uh, what what we typically get from consumers when they're talking about or Confessing this this incompatibility perception that they have is uh, you know I can't run it uh, the way I run my other locomotives with lens or with any of the other guys' uh, control systems like blanking them here Digitrax or any of those. And what we've got is we've got uh, we've got documents online that uh, show them and tell them exactly how to do certain functions with um, the locomotive and any of those particular control systems. Uh, and it's just a question of finding that document and following the directions. And what you, what you, one of the biggest things that we struggle with as a company, and I think all the manufacturers do this as well, is the complexity that DCC can bring to the table. Um, it's just not as intuitive and as easy to use as it should be. And it's, it's because it's 25 year old technology. Um, and there's no good, they're getting better, but there's no really good intuitive interface I think some of the computer-based control systems have gotten the, the closest to the mark um, that the consumers can look at and figure out how to use. I think most people, when they get a phone, they can figure out how to navigate through the phone. Um, DCS uses a very similar um, interface architecture that you find on cell phones today. Um, and so it's, it's pretty intuitive for most people. They know how to use it because they're used to that in other aspects of their life. Uh, if somebody wants to do speed matching, uh, from one locomotive to another, from different manufacturer uh, to different manufacturer, it's complex to do that under DCC. Uh, it requires an understanding of CV controls and how to access them, and it's not easy to do. Um, we hide a lot of those kind of functions in the ProtoSound 3.0 package, um, and we've created shortcuts and, and ability to, to do different things, and not everything, because we believe that 90, probably 99% of most users uh, who run under DCC don't know how to do it anyway. And they really just want to run um, the locomotive. They want to make it, they want to hear its sound. They want to activate its, its horns and, and, and whistles and, and whatnot. They don't really care about all of these other functions. It's a very small percentage. These are power users, obviously, that do. Um, and they're very vocal, but uh, most people aren't like that. And it, it, it's no different than if you're running a piece of Microsoft software on your computer and you want to access Word and do something in Word. Well, there's hundreds of features in there, and you you don't know how to do most of those. You know how to format the page and change the font and, and change the size of the font, underline things, and so on and so forth. But you don't know how to do the vast majority of the functions that are thrown into Microsoft Word or any other piece of software. Uh, and those who do get into it, but most people want to just be able to do X, you know, whether it's a word processing program or running your train. So uh, it's, you know, to get into those functions and do those different things, 
uh, just requires a level of complexity that we didn't think was that important. And what we, where we hear it from, and the mistake that we made, in all honesty, is that the power user is the loudest speaker out there. <laughs> They're going to say to most people, hey, you know, I don't like it because it doesn't do this, or it doesn't give me access to yeah, that, level of, very vocal. Yeah, that level of control. And it's that vocalness that's gotten out in the marketplace and created those misconceptions that the train doesn't even run, and that's just flat out not the case. Um, you know, the, the, the speed matching is a great example of where Protosound 3.0 and DCS uh, and even Protosound 2 and our O-Gage locomotives is so much different than anything else that's out there. Um, we, we use uh, software and algorithms in that software to determine the scale speed of a locomotive. So in the case of O-Gage, our locomotives run at 148 scale speed. Um, in the case of HO, it's 187th scale speed. And where you can really see it is when you run two totally different types of locomotives on the same track at the same time. Um, let's take a GS4 Daylight in HO with the tall drivers and an SD70 ACE diesel, a modern diesel with obviously much shorter wheels uh, than what you would find on a GS4. Well, if those were manufactured by another company with a DCC controller in there, and you wanted to speed match those things together, you would have to go into the CV controls to do that. And you would have to tweak one or the other locomotive to get them to run together. With, with MTH, whether you're running in analog mode, uh, DCC, or DCS, you put the two locomotives on the track, and you run them both at the same time. Don't even need to couple them up. Have three inches of space between them. And tell that locomotive to run at 10 volts or 12 volts or 10 scale mile an hour or speed step setting 23, whatever you want, depending on which me method of operation you're doing. Those two locomotives are going to run at the same speed. And the one is not going to get further away or closer to the other locomotive. And that's because of the technology that's in the protosound package and those algorithms which take into account the motor, the gear ratio, the size of the drive wheel, and are tweaked specifically for that model and programmed into that model at the factory so that the consumer doesn't have to do anything to run those locomotives together. And that, we believe, down the road will make a heck of a lot of sense to HO customers as we get more locomotives out there and as we come out with these upgrade modules down the road, people are going to be able to have more fun playing with their locomotives instead of tweaking them like they have to do today. You might consider something uh, like a point of sale, either a wobbler or something like that for your dealers that just, you know, very simply states to the uninitiated and uninformed, you know, this locomotive capable of being controlled by either DCC or DCS. Because, like I said, the people that – and some of these are really advanced modelers are – wrong story. Now – I'm at MTH Trains, which for the listeners, that's all one word, mthtrains.com. We don't want to look at the link at the bottom that says DCS because that takes you to, looks like a lot of documentation on the 2.0 system. Yeah, it's primarily the 2.0 system. So where, where folks want to go is they want to go to mthhotrains.com, and there's a link to that at the bottom of our, our homepage with our uh, orange MTH wing logo, and it says HO trains that do more underneath of it. When you click on that, um, that's going to take you to uh, a segment of our site that is dedicated to HO. And when you click on the Protosound 3.0 link um, on that page, uh, that will take you and provide you with information about Protosound 3.0 and all of the DCC functionality and DCS functionality that's related to Protosound 3.0. Okay, and I've just followed what you said. It's very clear, and there's a a very good page on exactly what Protosound 3.0 will do. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. That's simple enough. Now, uh, so we've got an incredible control system. I know I checked pricing. It's no more expensive than, you know, what you would pay for NCE Digitracks for uh, comparable features. You even have a uh, a wireless, I believe. Yep, it's wireless, and uh, you're right. The full the full system uh, street price is about 300 bucks, um, and so it's it's not uh, overly expensive from that standpoint, and very competitive with the other control systems that are out there. 
We also have a, a mid-range uh, system. It's not wireless. It's a standalone box um, called the DCS Commander. And this particular box um, allows the user to plug in a power supply, and it can be anybody's power supply. We also sell it with a 100-watt um, uh, AC power supply. And the, okay. the unit outputs DC power. So even though it's an AC power supply that plugs into it, it outputs DC power. And um, that box, the, the commander, can um, run in three different modes, if you will. Uh, analog, where the, uh, the unit is simply a conventional analog power supply. DC power out. There's a volt and amp meter on the front of it that tells you how many volts you're putting out. And you okay. can run anybody's train uh, that way. Um, you can push a DCS button and it goes into DCS mode and at that point it's still outputting DC power but now we're laying down a digital signal as well and it's outputting okay. a constant amount of power so whatever you're putting in is what's going out to the track so if it's a 16 volt power supply 16 volts is going out and uh, the DCS signal is, uh, is laid on top of that voltage and obviously in DCS mode you're only going to be running uh, MTH locomotives equipped with ProSound 3.0 um, the third option is to plug in to the commander a DCC controller. And uh, when you hit the button called pass-through, it's now turning off the DCS signal. It's turning off the DC output current, uh, voltage current, and it's passing through the DCC current and signal to the track. Um, and so in that mode, uh, it's simply an interface box. It's no longer... Um, none of its functions are, are accessible at that point. It's just a box. Um, okay. And you're using the DCC controller in that environment to actually run the layout. So if a customer is got, uh, has uh, MTH locomotives and they only want to run the MTH locomotives, then they can use the commander and run them in command mode um, using all the functions. I think there's 32 different functions on the commander box uh, and run those locomotives in command mode. Now, if they suddenly would like to run uh, somebody else's locomotive with a DCC receiver into it, they hit the pass-through and use their DCC controller, and now they're going to run those locomotives and the MTH locomotives using the DCC controller. So that's a, okay. that, that box is about $150 retail, uh, street price, um, without the power supply, and I think uh, $200 or so with the power supply. Uh, and then the third option is, is strictly a one locomotive uh, at a time um, uh, device. It's called a DCS remote commander. And this is an infrared wi wireless remote that talks to a small interface box that you plug power into and hook it up to the track. And we run one locomotive at a time and we give the customer uh, eight different functions. Uh, but you're running in command mode at that point. And, um, and so it's very easy to trigger whistles and bells and, and um, activate our couplers and uh, uh, adjust the sound volume and whatnot. Um, and um, it's a great way to start people out with the command control functionality, whether they ultimately decide to move to DCC or go to full DCS or whatever. They're getting a, an idea of how well you can control these locomotives from uh, an analog mode. You're moving up, basically. You're saying, you know, a customer might be used to an analog controller, and then they, mm -hmm. they take this little device, and now they've got walk-around wireless control and they're able to run these locomotives and do things, albeit you know only eight or so functions, that you cannot do under a strictly analog uh, environment. Um, and the nice thing about that particular device, the remote commander, is that it comes in all of our starter sets. Um, and so we're able to introduce MTH, HO locomotives and cars, power supplies, track, and the digital technology at a very affordable starter set price for the HO market or the O gauge market. And uh, that kind of thing is what will ultimately help people get into a frame of mind of understanding, hey, the DCS is different. It's not overly expensive, as we've already discussed, and um, it's darn easy to use. So as, as time goes on, I think you're going to see more and more of a better understanding uh, in, the, in the HO marketplace as to what we bring to the table. Okay. Uh, now, you've also got complete uh, passenger car contest. Uh, you actually got to the market on your Southern Pacific Daylight quicker than uh, the other company, I think, that had announced earlier than you. 
they've not delivered, but you have. You've got your train set out there with the new PAs to uh, to pull it. We do, and uh, those cars have been very well received. Uh, we spent a lot of time and effort uh, focusing on the development of those cars. Uh, with the, the, the real issue behind the development and the end, end product is that it be very distinguishable from what else was out there. And I think there's three ways that uh, people can uh, look at those cars and understand how much better our passionate cars are than what's currently available. Um, number one, uh, assuming that everybody can produce the same level of detail, um, mm -hmm. which not everybody does, but let's just assume that they do, our cars meet that, that, that expectation. If you look underneath of them, uh, they're well detailed. Uh, certainly, we've uh, tried to adhere to the prototype as best as possible. Even the interior decoration is uh, on those particular cars is specific based on the style car uh, that was in use during the two periods um, that the, the real-life cars ran. Um, and then there are some improvements that you would find uh, detail-wise. I think the antenna that we uh, put on top of the observation car, the, the wire itself is finer. Um, and looks a little bit more realistic, assuming it doesn't get kinked, um, which can be <laughs> something that can happen if you mishandle the car. Um, but, you know, the point was is that we wanted it to look as realistic as possible, and so that was the, the attempt there, and I, I think I'm okay with that decision-making, though we've, we've gotten some, some critiques from folks when the wire gets kinked. Uh, but the big difference, uh, detail-wise, on those cars is the end-of-car uh, diaphragm uh, between each car. Uh, we spend a lot of time to make that as, as realistic looking and as operable as possible. And we show it in our online video how easy uh, it, it compresses back and forth uh, when you touch it. Um, and you can couple those cars up closer together depending on whether you have wide curves or not on your, on your layout um, to really give a very realistic uh, appearance. So, uh, assuming that uh, you've got the wide curves, they look darn good from that perspective. And, and that end-of-car diaphragm is something that we're pretty pretty proud of. Um, okay, so going away from detail, uh, you've got the trucks. And the trucks roll very, very smoothly. Um, we One of the things that I wanted to do, and we haven't gotten around to it yet, is, is showing a, a comparison between our cars and some of the other ones that are out there on a small incline and showing how well that they roll. And uh, the feedback that we've gotten from the marketplace is that nobody's cars roll as well as these cars. So I think there's a definite improvement uh, there, which is something we always strive to do with our product, is to make sure it's distinguishable from our competitors. And then the third thing uh, that helps that, that, uh, that mark uh, be met is the lighting. These cars have LED lighting that is constant voltage. Um, we have a, a small board inside uh, each car that utilizes a series of capacitors that power those lights. And the end result is there's no light flicker. The light is on, okay. it's bright, regardless of the track voltage. So if you're running in, in uh, analog mode at, at 10 volts, the lights are bright. Even at 18 volts, they're bright. Uh, they don't change in intensity. Uh, the capacitor does have to energize. So uh, when you first power up the, the, the layout, uh, it may take 20 seconds or so before the lights come on. But once they do, they stay on regardless of voltage changes, regardless of bad track, dirty track, no, no flickering or anything like that. And when you shut the power off, uh, they'll stay lit up for a minute or two uh, until the capacitor is discharged. So you've got better okay. lighting, you've got better operation because of the improved trucks. Um, you have, in my mind, better detailing with things like the end of car diaphragms and the ability to adjust the coupler. Uh, length so that you can couple the, local, the cars up closer to one another and make them look more realistic. And the end result okay. has been that they've sold phenomenally well. And, uh, yeah, we did get them out on the market uh, quicker than our competitors, and uh, uh, it's been great from that perspective. And it's translating to the other cars that we're bringing out. If you think the daylight cars are nice, wait till you see the Empire and the Dreyfus cars to go with our two newer Central Hudsons. They're going to be dying. Now, those are due out what? Uh, the, Very shortly. Yeah, the Empire cars are due out here in about 30 days, 30 to 45 days, and the uh, Dreyfus cars will follow that. So both sets of cars will be well out in the marketplace by the summertime, and uh, I think the response is just going to be tremendous when folks get to see those cars. Okay. And then what about do you – because like your uh, daylight cars – you know, came out, what, late 2010, and, of course, they're sold out at, like, Walters and places like that. Do you guys have 
plans to periodically, and this would apply to all your product, do uh, re-releases? Oh, absolutely. And uh, I think actually we have those daylight cars in production right now. I know we just delivered. Oh, okay. We just delivered our second run of Norfolk and Western uh, passenger cars because the first run of those sold out, um, and they came out in 2011, and we sold those out, and we just just got another run of those in. And uh, more daylight cars are coming to correspond with our uh, GS4 steam engine production because we're re-releasing that uh, locomotive as well. And, and so the bottom line is uh, you'll find, and I think all the manufacturers are following the same model, you'll find that some products are going to get announced and they're going to get out in the marketplace and then they're going to disappear because we don't have any left. Um, and, yeah. and that's really a result of we're not uh, taking the gamble and inventory in huge quantities of stuff uh, we'd rather just run them multiple times, and uh, there'll okay. be periods of time where we don't have them. Uh, but the marketplace uh, may still have some hanging around, and uh, um, when they run out, you know, hopefully when we rerun the things, we feed the market again. Uh, one of the nice things that folks uh, get to enjoy when they visit the MTH website is our product locator. And this particular function on the site allows you to look up an item, let's say those SP Daylight cars, and when you when you've arrived at the detail page after doing the search for the uh, for the cars, one of the functions on the detail page on the site is uh, a link called Find It. And when you click on that link, um, it will take you to a list of all the retailers that carry our product that claim to have those cars in stock. Um, and then you can click on their links and contact them and purchase the cars that way. So even when we sell out. We do our best to make sure that the consumer can find the cars in the marketplace by using that product locator function. And when okay. when we use what we use that function for is when we see that an item isn't available by anybody in the market, we know we don't have them. Well, that's a good time to think about rerunning it. So uh, we it's a real good tool for us just to understand you know where an item is in the marketplace uh, in terms of availability uh, and making them again. Okay, and. Uh just like Andy mentioned when you go to their site, and I just clicked on the uh, SP Daylight Cars, which has a uh, banner headline saying now in production, and the Find It link takes me to a list of dealers, and you open up that dealer location, and it tells me where the cars are, and it looks like they are indeed uh, shipping right now. So that gives you uh, a path to follow in case you need them. Uh, you've got... If we can, uh, I did an interview oh, a week or so ago with a uh, another company that is a supplier like you, and we got into a discussion of the events in China and the impact on cost, uh, which is hitting everybody. Uh, another supplier this week put out an announcement about changes to his uh, distribution channel and so forth, which had, you know, the forums buzzing and so forth. Uh, how much, you know, I know like there's a freight car company, they do all their molding, tooling here, and then it goes across the pond to be assembled and painted and so forth. Is that, are you guys, you know, split between uh, USA and, and China, as it were? Uh, well, all the manufacturing is done offshore uh, in Asia, okay. in both Korea and in China. Okay. And um, we, we, our headquarters are in Columbia, Maryland, which is just 20 minutes south of Baltimore, right between Baltimore and Washington. Um, yeah. We have an R&D facility in Michigan, which develops all of the technology <coughs> packages, ProtoSound and okay. TCS and whatnot. Um, we do all of our... Uh, shipping and receiving out of the Columbia, Maryland facility. All of our customer service and uh, technicians and whatnot are all housed here. Marketing, sales uh, are all done here. And uh, But we've always manufactured offshore. Um, uh, even uh, back in the 80s when we were building the template products, um, the products themselves, the components were manufactured offshore brought in for a period of time, painted and assembled, but eventually that went offshore as well. So we've really never had the functionality or the ability to uh, produce stuff domestically. You'd have to sub it out to plastic injection molders and die-cast molders and that kind of thing. And um, uh, so it still makes sense to stay in Asia because we don't have that, that functionality. And really nobody 
pretty much does anymore uh, in, in the model train marketplace. Um, and the biggest problem that uh, we run into is um, the fact that um, you've got a time delay uh, dealing with uh, Asia, and obviously a shipping delay. It takes upwards of six weeks to get product once it's uh, been produced. But aside, you know, once you once you deal with that, it's um, and build that into your systems. It's it's you know fairly easy to to, to, to manufacture product offshore. Um, the problems that everybody sees today is that the Asian economy is changing and costs are going up. And um, and it's always been that way. It was uh, the same way in Japan. When Japan was recovering from World War II, they became a manufacturing uh, base for a lot of companies. And eventually that moved to Korea, and, and now it's moved to China, and who knows where it'll go from here. Um, and it's just really a, a function of, um, of economics. Um, and, um, uh, you know, China's experiencing the same thing that all these other countries have. Uh, and we get a lot of folks who ask, you know, well, why don't you do it here? Why don't you do it domestically? And uh, uh, obviously the issues that I just laid out there are one one particular problem. But the bigger one is that model railroaders don't buy trains in huge quantities. Um, mm-hmm. uh, these products aren't made in the tens of thousands. They're made in the thousands and, and oftentimes in the hundreds uh, for, mm-hmm. a given, for a given item. And uh, so it's very difficult to competitively price that kind of stuff in the U.S. because the injection molding companies that are still around don't want to deal with a hundred of something, or I shouldn't say a hundred, but you know, hundreds of something. Um, they really don't even want to deal with thousands of something. They want ten thousands. And uh, uh, so it would be very difficult to be price competitive, um, even with the escalating costs in Asia, if you produce the product domestically. Um, because of the MOQs, the minimum order quantities that are required. And I think that in order for a model train manufacturer to do that, um, they either have to have a very niche product that can um, uh, afford to have the higher cost built into it, um, Mm -hmm. or all the manufacturers have to come back at once. (laughs) Uh, Because you're not going to make that decision um, and be the only one on an island, so to speak, even though it's right next door if your competitors are still able to kill you uh, with their costs and prices. So uh, the end result is is that those escalating costs that are happening in Asia, and frankly, uh, most of it isn't uh, related to um, uh, labor. It's related to raw material. Uh, the price of oil increases the price of plastic. Uh, sure does. The development in China for other products, steel um, and whatnot, increases the price of metals. Um, to make uh, the, the, the stuff. And so uh, you have all of these price effects that uh, increase your costs. And um, fortunately, you're able to absorb some of those in some cases um, and not pass on as much as you may have liked to do um, uh, and kind of maintain or, or marginally increase price costs at the street level. Um, and the end result is the customer is still getting a heck of a deal uh, compared to what it would cost if it was produced in the United States. So, um, you know, we're able to, to, to deal with that just like everybody else, um, and uh, nothing really has changed from that level of, of, of our side of the business. Uh, what has changed, I think, for our competitors is um, a lot of uh, companies use the same manufacturing sources in Asia. We do not. Um, our manufacturing facilities, we have three in China and one in Korea. Uh, okay. They uh, exclusively build our model trains for us. They don't build model trains for any of our. And so that's allowed us to weather some of the shakeup that's uh, been going on over there and that you referenced uh, earlier. Uh, and uh, we're very pleased with that, that fact uh, that we're able to weather that and we don't have uh, to deal with those circumstances. Uh, our bigger problem uh, in Asia is really dealing with uh, increasing capacities and it's caused some delays in the release of products uh, in certain categories uh, at MTH um, because we haven't been able to, to produce the quantities in the, in the facilities that we need to produce for the market. Um, and that's a good problem to have in that our orders are bigger than our ability to produce. Um, and we just have to increase capacities to deal with that. But uh, I'd rather have that problem than no sales, so I'll, I'll live with it. Woods, I think it's, you know, it was very insightful of uh, you guys to get, uh, let's just, lack a better term, a captive source over there. Uh, 
uh, instead of a, you know, like the holding company approach that does a lot of different people's uh, products. Because if he goes under, then a lot of people are out of luck. Now, there's a lot of talk about the things that you mentioned, economies of scale, you know, what the market is willing to pay for a product. And then they talk about the, spec- the specific skill sets that they you know, that have evolved or developed in China about assembling and detailing model trains. And it, I guess I under, I can understand that, that that would seem to be a learnable skill, but that's typically the real rural, almost country environment. And you've got the exploding middle class in China that's becoming urbanized. There's data out there says that that's somewhere between 100 million people to 250 million people. Uh, so I wonder in the future with that urbanization trend where these people are becoming more metropolitan, are those skill sets going to be so diluted as people move to the big city you know, that, that we lose that ability to tap that rural subculture for model trains? Well, that, that's, that's certainly uh, an issue. And, and what we find is that First of all, the facilities aren't located in the urban areas. They're, they're in the outlying areas uh, exactly. in, in order to take advantage of that labor. Um, and uh, what we typically find is that um, while labor costs have gone up, uh, it's retaining the employees that you typically struggle with because there's a lot of opportunity. And uh, they'll move from one, one facility to another. And so you've spent time uh, training them. And, uh, and, and you know, let's face it, you know, when you're assembling uh, trains, it, it may not be the most exciting thing, uh, and as you see that there are other opportunities out there, you may pursue them. Um, so uh, certainly down the road, uh, th- there may be a, uh, a labor shortage in the sense that there's no, there's physically no bodies out there to train. Um, but I, that's not going to happen in the, in the short run. The bigger issue is retaining these employees after you've spent the time and the money to train them to build the product. Uh, uh, that's really the, the challenge. It's it, We've been able to go out and find more people. Um, it's just keeping them. And, uh, uh, and that's, that's really a, re- a reflection of the Chinese manufacturing sector and how, how much it's grown over the years. It's slowed down a little bit. The global recession has, has kind of curtailed it a little bit. But you still spend money and time to invest in these folks, and, and you, you, know, you want to do what you can to keep them. And uh, you know, that does have a bearing on the product cost to some degree, but um, it, it's really more of a frustration factor, I think, than anything because you can – you can replace them with without increasing your labor costs. It's the cost and time to train them that that you that you reincur every time. Okay, what uh, what's in the future for MTH uh, that you can share with us? You know, what kind of new and different locomotive do you have coming out? I see you've got your GP35. We have the GP35. We have another one on on the horizon um, that we'll be announcing in the fall. Uh, okay. That'll be a 2013 delivery. The GP35 should ship to retailers in late spring, early summer, uh, and by that, it's June, July is really what we're looking at. And I, I'm, I'm a stickler for when, when the season actually changes. So I think some people will say, <laughs> well, June is summer. I'll say, well, not till June 22nd. But, <laughs> but uh, at any rate, um, uh, so that, that engine will get out there. Uh, we obviously have some steam locomotives that we cataloged last year that haven't delivered yet. Uh, the GS4 Daylight should be out the uh, summertime. Uh, we've got uh, the um, Big Boys and Challengers that we'll be running. They'll be out. The Erie Triplex will be back out again. All those engines will ship this year. Uh, yeah, you're breaking my bank account. I hear you. Right? I, you well, just named three that are on my list. Well, that is our job. Our job is to take our customers' money. So, uh, uh, <laughs> you know, we're all – that, that's the deal. So, uh, But uh, we've our what I get from customers all the time, are you going to make this or are you going to make that? Our response is if you look at uh, what we've done in our O-Gage product line, that's a good bellwether, a good indicator, what we might do in, in HO. And uh, there's a ton of things that we've done in O that we have yet to do in HO. So um, if people want to get an idea where we might go down the road, just look at what we've done in O. And, uh, and if you, there's no competitor that has done something similar to that in HO, then those items might be a darn good candidate for an HO product from MTH in the future. And you're even offering certain products 
professionally weathered. We are, and that was uh, just a, a little thing that we thought we would try. We did that uh, in our O-Gage line uh, about five or six years ago with some of our buildings, and they did okay. And uh, But O-Gage folks aren't the same as O-Scale two-rail guys are, but most of your three-rail O-Gage people don't care that much about that. It, that market's tra- changing a little bit, that segment of the market, but they so they were okay. I was a little skeptical as to how well these weathered pieces would do in HO, and they've done very well. Um, so I was, uh, my skepticism was not founded uh, in terms of what the, the sales were. So we'll continue to offer that. Uh, I think you'll see some rolling stock uh, uh, offerings later this year uh, with the weathering treatment on there. And uh, the feedback that we've gotten from the customers has been pretty good. Um, you know, weathering like sound is very subjective. Uh, some people are going to find it to be right on. Others are going to say it's too heavy and, you know, it's not, it's not right or whatever. And uh, same thing with sound. You know, to one guy's ear, it sounds great. To another guy's ear, it's not right. And uh, so you never will please everybody 100% of the time. But the feedback, uh, the positive feedback has been far greater than any negative critiques that we've gotten. So it seems to be working. If the numbers are okay, they're not huge. But uh, certainly uh, the, uh, the numbers are better than what I had anticipated based on uh, our experiences with the O-Gage buildings five or six years ago. Yeah, well, whoever's doing it is doing a very good job looking at these photos. It uh, looks real. Good. So you can't can't say anything better than, hey, it looks real. Well, that's, okay. what, that's what we want to hear, so that's great. Okay. Well, Andy, I appreciate your time. Uh, I think it was good that we got to talk about the DCS. Again, our guest today has been Andy Edelman of uh, MTH Trains, and I uh, hope you've enjoyed the show, and stay tuned.